and welcome to Check It Out with EVPL, a podcast from your local library. I'm your host, Ellen, and today I'm joined by Jake. Ahoy, ahoy. Hey, Jake, what are we here to talk about today? Oh, everything from the beginning of word processing up through the modern computer. Yeah, that's pretty fun. It covers a lot of stuff from technology, but also just kind of what the library has to offer yeah. in that department. Yeah, we have evolved so much in just a small speck of time, really. You can say it's a small speck of time. We are going pretty far back. Into oh, like yeah. Yeah, true. <laughs> technology. When you think about the yeah. modern way people think about libraries, though, it, it's really a small speck of time in the larger yeah. chunk of time. Though, yeah, I'm just saying we don't, don't want to examine true. the totality of the universe right now. No, 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 no. We're not going back that far. So word processors are typically software, and we would be looking at information like, you know, Microsoft Word or mm-hmm. Google Docs. But we are going to start with their predecessors, which do you know what that would be? The typewriter. Yes. So typewriters are not actually word processors. They are just typing machines. And that is because word processors are designed to be able to edit as you go. Whereas typewriters, you get what you get. I actually have, and I almost brought one to this recording today. It is in the empty cubicle next to me here at Central Library, a 1960, I forget what year it was, uh, something typewriter, manual typewriter that is so old, but I wish it still worked. I would have brought it just for the sound effects. I really like manual typewriters, but also in doing this research, IBM made this like really cool thing with a little spinning ball, which we'll get into in a minute. Yes, yes. So... I think we actually have one of those somewhere else here in the library, but I'm not sure where. For electric? I think so. Uh, do you know when typewriters were invented? You know, I actually saw it pop up on my computer this week, but I don't remember specifically. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of different possible dates. I saw a date of like 1922 for the standard design, but that's with like the standard keyboard, but I'm sure there's a much earlier year. Yeah, so the 20s was kind of like when the keyboard was standardized, Mm -hmm. but the first kind of recognizable typewriters were produced in the 1870s. Fun. Um, Fun. So before that, there was a machine called a typographer in 1830, and it kind of looked like a mix between a printing press and a typewriter and a pinball machine. (laughs) Yeah, so it, it was like a little board on legs that were three feet long. So you would like stand at it and type and you had to individually select each letter every time and like rotate a dial, I think, or maybe move some strings around. It was very confusing. I don't understand it. And it didn't really catch on. I can't imagine the pain of trying to type something like we would today. Like my notes for this are four pages typed out in Microsoft Word and then compare. Oh my gosh. Wow. No, 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 no. However, there was a typing device patented before that in 1714. Oh, well. But there is no record or description of the prototype, and it was never really like produced on a mass scale. So you can kind of say 1714, maybe. You also might be able to say 1575. Oh, more numbers. <laughs> so many numbers. I didn't expect all these numbers today. This is just years. It's not that many. But there is a rumor that in 1575, an Italian man invented a typing machine that would help blind people read and write letters to each other. Hmm. And it would press a letter into a paper, like relief style, so it would be bumpy and tactile. Yeah. 
But then I saw a few different things. The only article that really looked in-depth in it was in Italian. So that kind of sucked. But it seems like that machine may or may not have existed ever. It may have just been fabricated. Well, I was looking into... I looked at the start of the printing press and when Gutenberg did his printing press. Comparing that against what we have in like modern language and modern typing, I was just like, wow, how things have changed. And there are people that still in, I believe in Amish communities, use old school printing presses. And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. oh, wow. Yeah, which printing presses were really common. They're electrical now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's still the same kind of idea. You put ink on something and it prints. I wish someone had been able to preserve the printing presses that came out of the Evansville Courier and Press offices when they outsourced production oh, five or ten years ago outside of Evansville because I remember touring that, oh, in the early, mid-90s in elementary school. And if anyone listening to this ever got to tour the Evansville Courier Company offices on Walnut Street after they moved and merged in with the press, that was impressive machinery. And I just have to say it's it's sad that things like that do slowly go away and they get consolidated down. Lots of work went into putting things like that together. If you do want to see some historical printing presses in action, you should check out the Sacramento History Museum's TikTok because they have a lot of videos of and thank you TikTok. An older gentleman who volunteers and he does printing display. So he rolls out the ink and presses and does kind of all the stuff that you would expect to see from that. Be able to go somewhere and do that would be so fun. Mm -hmm. So getting back to typewriters, though. Like I said, the first really recognizable typewriters were in the 1870s. They were made by E. Remington and Sons, and they would cost the average person their annual salary. Jeez Louise. This was not a common machine. This was like a high-end, fancy business person machine. And all it did was type letters. And and numbers, to be fair. Yeah. And these machines were also mechanical. There was not any sort of electricity or anything. So you would press a button, it would trigger a lever, and the letter would hit the paper. After that, typewriters didn't really change a ton until they started becoming electric. But this is the era where we do get kind of that keyboard layout, like you said. Yeah. So the standard layout for typewriters, computers, really anything nowadays here in America is the QWERTY layout. Yes. Which, do you know why it's called that? Does it have to do with the position of the keys? Is that why they went with the name? Yes, it okay. is the first five letters on the top lettered row of your keyboard. Ah, ha. Now yes. I see that as I look at the computer in front of me. Okay. Yeah, it's very I obvious. Thought it had some, I knew I had been told this in some computing class in high school. And I remember one time someone brought a computer into, I was a writing tutor at USI in college, and we had someone who uh, had bought a computer in England. And I sat down and I was like typing and I'm like, wait, what? am I really bad at typing today? And she told me, oh, I have the British layout. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I I honestly have never looked in to see how different they are. But I did one time see a keyboard for sale online. I guess it was on Amazon that had all of the letters in A to Z order. And it was so strange to see it that way. Yeah, I, I believe that was one of the more original layouts is they would do alphabetical order or there were some other layouts. But those are so old, we don't really talk about them much. Yeah. Do you know why QWERTY became the standard? No. 
Okay, so there are a few different reasons. Have you ever possibly heard that the layout was made to reduce the number of jams when using a typewriter? Huh. Yeah, I would have never thought that. Yeah, because like I said, it's that mechanical action where a lever triggers to punch the letter. So if you're typing too fast and the letters are too close together, you know, the the levers could like twist around each other and lock up and then you have to spend time fixing them, making sure they're not bent or broken or anything like that. So this is one idea of why we may have adapted this keyboard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some people don't believe that, though. Some people think that separating the letters like that, that's not actually how a person types these days. Yeah. And so it's a little hard to go back in time and see how different our modern day typing is from that typing. So that one's kind of up in the air. The other reason is people think it would slow down typists. So if you have to look and really think about what keys you're hitting, if it's not in alphabetical order, then you go slower, you're less likely to make mistakes. But this is also just a rumor because when typewriters were primarily being used, a lot of typists would be writing down dictation from their boss. So if you slow Mm -hmm. down a typist Mm -hmm. too much, they're going to miss something. I, I was in a meeting recently here at work. Someone volunteered me to be secretary and take notes. And I was like, okay, I have a laptop in front of me and realized you have to type fast if you want to get every word in. And whew, not my strong suit all the time. And that was also a common issue with old-fashioned keyboards. It was hard to get a, a lot of words typed very quickly mm-hmm. because people weren't used to it. And with that, we're going to get into electronic typewriters. So when do you think electronic typewriters became a thing? I'm guessing more into probably the 60s or 70s, 1960s or 1970s. This is another instance where they're older than you think. Ah, okay. Electronic typewriters started showing up after World War I. Oh, well, consider me amazed. Yeah, so this kind of takes you back to bulkier systems that don't look a lot like what you would expect. Mm -hmm. An electric typewriter in those days would be similar to kind of like a factory machine. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be very portable. You would have to hook it up and then just use it exactly where it is. So that kind of, you know, it made it more difficult, again, for the individual to own for people to make any sort of change. It's, It's a lot of work for that. Uh, The first, quote-unquote first, recognized motorized typewriters were made by a company called Electromatic. And uh, shortly after they created these machines, IBM bought them in 1933. And that's kind of when electronic typewriters became a bit smaller and a little bit more portable. But yes, the 60s are an important date for typewriters because 1961 is when IBM released the Selectronic. And it was very different because it did not use the traditional levers. Do you know what it used instead? Okay, now I'm trying to remember from when I've used a typewriter. Was it just a certain key you would hit, kind of like how we have tab keys? It still had mechanical keys that did okay. something. Okay. But each it, letter did not represent like its own lever that just had that letter on it. Weird. Wow. It had a spherical metal ball. Okay, I remember seeing this now when I've watched way too many typewriter videos this week, too. It was really cool. It was really unique because it was plastic plated in metal, so it was both cheap to produce and very sturdy. Longevity, that's what people wanted when they bought things, or when you buy things today, too. Yeah, it was probably about the size of a golf ball, maybe a little bigger, I think. Mm -hmm. And you can still find these online. You can actually still buy them for pretty cheap. Yeah. 
but this little golf ball sized thing was just covered in different symbols all over. And as you hit the keys on your keyboard, it would rotate the ball so that the correct letter hit the paper. Makes sense. It was way faster. This is where you get typing speeds increasing. Um, Different accounts say that it allowed typists to reach up to 90 words a minute, Mm -hmm. which is way faster than I can type today. Yeah. I like to think I'm a fast typer, but I really am not. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm pathetic when it comes to typing. If I try to increase the speed at which I normally type, I mean, you go back and look, and if you put that into Microsoft Word, you're going to get so many red underlines. Yeah, and this is also why you would hire specific people to be typists. Yeah. Yeah, that was their whole job was typing quickly and accurately, and it really was a skill. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think even today it's a skill just based on yeah. my own and apparently your own typing habits. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, this uh, Selectric spherical type ball, all the ads say that it danced across the page. And if you look up the ads, they're amazing. It's all like ballet dancers, like being so beautiful. Oh. And then it's like a typewriter in front I've got of to it, make like a this note big bulky that. typewriter. I just found one that I Googled here easiest portable to use in the world. And she's like looking at this it's so delicate, she doesn't want to touch it. A gift for everyone this holiday. That gift for everyone this holiday would cost the equivalent of $3,000 in today's money. <laughs> this is a very like advanced, super cool typewriter, but it's still, it, it just types words. Yeah. Although I will say you can buy the type balls with different fonts. So like that was a big deal was that you could change the font on your typewriter. See, yeah, that makes sense to me that it was at some point that helped us in that transition to modern word processing because folks didn't want to just use one singular font. They mm-hmm. wanted some kind of customization like you saw in magazines and newspapers and other advertising. Yeah. And this also made it easier to produce for people who used other languages. So you could just change out the type ball and switch out the keycaps without changing like the production of the machine itself. That's big for that age and time. Just thinking back, I would never have expected that to be a very viable option for many people. Yeah, it definitely makes sense that this was the Selectric typewriter. That was how you know you made it in business mm-hmm. was you had a typist pool full of, yeah. of beautiful yeah. ladies typing on their IMB <laughs> Selectrics, which I just think is so funny. It's great. I've got a thing in my notes here that kind of ties into that because the modern word processor, 1969 is when they started to do the very basic, there was an $8,000 machine and I believe it was the Redactron and that was eventually sold to another corporation from um, being tied in with IBM. But as a word, they, they finally, word processing and word processor, New York Times picked it up in 1971 as a buzzword. And they'll talk about here how typewriters dominated the newsrooms of the 1980s. And, and you didn't mm-hmm. see a lot of computing until you got into the 1990s. Well, also, it kind of, at that point, it's the standard and it's yeah. hard to adjust away yeah. from the standard. I'd typewriters... Love- were a staple for so long because everyone knew how they worked at that point. I'd love to see uh, if anyone makes a show, kind of Mad Men-esque show, that goes from how they operated in an office in the 60s to looking at like the office of the 80s, but look at it from today's perspective. I feel like that would be so cool to see the change for people dealing with the typewriter to computer change. So with all of these fancy and expensive adjustments, you can still find Selectric typewriters on like eBay. They go anywhere from like 50 bucks for one that doesn't work up to like 700. Yeah, I saw one. I started getting targeted ads on my phone after looking at stuff this week and Google was uh, drawing on some eBay ads 
and it kept wanting me to do a buy it now for $310 on this really ugly gray rectangular sort of typewriter looking device. And I'm like, no, I really don't want this. If you do want a more modern one, though, you can still buy a Royal Classic Manual Typewriter, and that'll run you about 250 bucks. Hmm. Completely manual, not electric. <laughs> um, so it uses that like single button equals single lever, no changeable font. But it's very fun, and it comes in a lot of cool colors. I just looked this up online, and now I do kind of want one of those. That is nice. Yeah, yeah, they're very sleek looking for typewriters. Yeah. For the end of the world that may come soon, who knows? No. Yeah, yeah af- after Twitter dies, we'll all yes. just switch over to typing out in mail. We won't tweets. tweet. We'll just we'll just throw random sheets of paper out into the ether and hope for the best. Uh, so that kind of brings us into when computers started to become bigger, which I think you have a bit more research. Yeah. On. So, like I, I mentioned. I, when I think about computers, I think about the the primary use, and I think about how we use them in the library. And word processing, I will say, was the big thing. And like I said, 1971, that's when the New York Times picked up word processing as a buzzword. And they and this is from a 1971 trade show article. Let me just read these couple few sentences here. The buzzword for this year's show was word processing, or the use of electronic equipment like a typewriter, procedures and trained personnel to maximize office efficiency in the future. At the IBM exhibition, a girl typed on an electronic typewriter, and the copy was received on a magnetic tape cassette, which accepted corrections, deletions, additions, and so much more, and then produced a perfect letter for the boss's signature. And I think about that, and I'm just like, ooh, fancy. And now you can e-sign on yeah, your touchscreen Yeah, screen and phone. I think about when I, I got a new, newer car last year, and the credit union's like, here, tap this on your phone, and you're done, and... Around this time when the buzzword of word processing is happening, this is still according to the New York Times research on this, uh, a third of all women working in the U.S. were secretaries. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't a secretary, essentially around that time, if you go look at the labor statistics for the U.S., you're either so secretary, housewife, teacher, nurse, and (laughs) secretaries are going to be the ones typing there out of that pool. Just looking back at the numbers, a lot of people weren't in their houses. I'm going to type a letter to my cousin in Sacramento. It's it's just not a not a thing we were doing back then. Mm-hmm. Everything was handwritten. We were that's what we were used to. Libraries then, I mean, it wasn't even common to always find a typewriter in a library. You would go to the library to look up information, to ask your librarian about some facts that may be on file, to read an archive of the paper, to find an archive of a a city directory, which, I mean, some of these things we still do quite often. But it did kind of lay the groundwork for how libraries would develop in the future and how computing would essentially become something that libraries were on the forefront of and adopted computers even before you saw them show up in homes more often. And so as you went through the 70s, you saw more of these. If you go to Wikipedia or any modern encyclopedia online, you will find this ad nauseum tale of so many companies trying to get into the word processing game. And they all go back to this electric IBM as the model of how they wanted to make it work. And then they got into um, like how we could put a display with this to show before you decide to put it on the paper. And you're thinking, ah, print preview. (laughs) 
I actually learned how to type on a machine like that. I remember being in, I want to say, like, second grade. Yeah. And it was one of the super fancy stations. You could use this old-fashioned typewriter that had an itty-bitty little screen. Yeah, I remember seeing those, and I remember one teacher in our hallway, and I want to say this was second or third grade, had a Windows 3 computer, or 3.1, whatever they were calling it at the time, and this power button on this monitor-like piece, and this big box part attached under it. It was all just just the one giant piece, and Mm -hmm. there was this long, big keyboard in front of it. It would pop up on the black and green screen, and then this really, if you've never seen Windows 3.1, I insist you go out there and look it up. This really basic, basic operating system, and we could type in and then print, and it printed on an old dot matrix printer, and oh, oh my gosh, so much fun! I thought that was the greatest thing, and but all I ever saw that device do besides type was you could do Oregon Trail, you could play Oregon Trail. Yeah, I remember the dot matrix printer paper. <sighs> yeah, it was always connected, and you had to oh, yeah. rip the little tabby bits off. The Fun sides. story: uh, We were cleaning in the reference department at Central Library here uh, late last year, and we pulled this box off a shelf, and it said printer paper, and we're like, "Oh." More reams of paper. Okay, cool. We can use this. We always need printer paper. Only to open and find out it's it is eight and a half by eleven, but it's dot matrix paper. <laughs> so we have been working through this pile of paper, breaking the perforations, breaking off the little holy bits on the side. And I mean, I've used what's still good as scrap paper here in the library because mm-hmm. we always need it for card catalog station or not card catalog stations. Gosh. Library catalog stations. I'm dating. I'm, I'm, I'm going back to when we still saw those around the floor at the old central. Yeah, I think everything we're saying about our childhoods in this episode is dating us pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. So what else do we have once we have these kind of hybrid typewriter computer yeah. processor things? So one of the things that stood out when i was looking at this in 1978 there was this it was called the toshiba jw10 it was uh, the first word processor but it was for the japanese language and just kind of envision a kitchen oven with a screen on top and somewhat of a keyboard it's like a black and white screen you got this device that still you would basically type then it would appear on the screen a little later and then somehow it did print there's a lot of stuff lost in translation there that i didn't wasn't able to find out exactly why it was what it was Mm -hmm. kind of what we were just talking about here the screens the electronic typewriters were as you got into the 80s and 90s you saw this little funky screens would pop up in front of paper trays so to speak i guess uh that would go on the back of the typewriter where you could see one to two lines at a time. And I mean, predominantly there was the idea in the early 1980s. Uh, there's a company called Multimate and Electric Pencil that were both big into doing that. Um, and that's what led Microsoft to think we should be doing this on the computer full time. And Microsoft, well, I don't want to say it was just Microsoft, Microsoft and IBM and anyone else who was basically doing anything with computers at the time got into this. So and this is when computers would have been like punch cards and really yes. just... So you, you, it's, it's like we're on the, on the verge of going from the punch card into kind of like the DOS operating system is mm-hmm. what the way I understand it. 
you didn't even have the cursor key at the time. You kind of just, you didn't go any farther forward in your document. You couldn't skip lines except maybe one line. And that was it. And when you printed, you printed at the top of the page. You didn't print in the middle. You didn't print at the bottom. It printed basically where any of these devices wanted you to start at the top. And if you messed up still, there was editing a bit. Mm-hmm. A lot of people didn't edit. And that's why these early devices, which kind of became the personal computers too, you saw software come out. And the very first was really WordStar. And it kind of became a program that was, I don't want to say the template for, but kind of inspired what we see today in Microsoft Word. What was really the two bigger programs to start before Microsoft Word, before that became big, like in Windows 2 and 3, we still have WordPad. Mm -hmm. Think of Word back then as like a really advanced version of Notepad. (laughs) And then WordPad, WordStar kind of is the same thing. And then WordPerfect and Lotus. I I think I know WordPerfect. Yeah, you can actually. I, I happened to be looking around online, and I checked this inventory for Office Depot and Staples here in Evansville. And you can still go and buy the uh, software C- or software DVDs of WordPerfect and the WordPerfect Office family. And it's made by a company called Corel, C-O-R-E-L. Yeah. You can buy Corel presentations to compete with PowerPoint. So I know Corel because it's what my dad used when I was really little. And he had a very old version that was on, um, so not CDs, not your hard, like, three-inch floppy disks. Like the, the big, big oh the big floppy the big yeah. floppy disks that were like actually floppy and I remember like even back then thinking this is archaic who would use this and I was really curious as where the library stood on this where EVPL stood on this and mm-hmm. we're gonna date ourselves even more here we're gonna go pre EVPL to the EVCPL here the Evansville Vandenberg County Public Library the really brief history lesson here we uh, as EVPL started as the Vandenberg County Public Library and the Evansville Public Library and then there was the merger and then in the 90s we went from EVCPL to EVPL but in the EVCPL days uh, according to our current public services manager in we're believing this is around 1984 to 1989 the Oakland branch the old Oakland branch got the first public computer which we believed was an Apple 1 or Apple 2 and that came through uh, grant funds and with this we had to have storage for this thing too because nothing worked together on these devices I mean my really old thumb drive and my desk here at work holds more than probably 10 of these apples but from back then would have held we had to have these backups for government documents too according to some of this research i was able to find and this was around the same time the library is investing not just in computers there for the public to try things out but to just keep track of our materials and that's how the catalog slowly became what we have today and got away from the print card catalog mm-hmm. A lot of the technology we use, though, still is built on the same file system, the file structure the library has been running on. One of the fun things I found was that one of our current IT employees was able to trace back in her message archive our email system and the predecessor to our email system, (laughs) just internal messages and memos and whatnot, that there was computer training offered by a former employee in the uh, early 90s to learn just what it was to type things on a computer and to uh, learn how to use what was the very basic version of Word and all that. It's crazy that it kind of comes full circle now because like, I don't think they really teach typing anymore, do they? 
So when I was teaching up until about eight years ago, I know my middle school students were getting a very, very basic typing instruction, but it was done on a Chromebook. Yeah. So it was not on a PC like I learned. I remember doing the essentials of typing starting in the year 2000 at Oak Hill Middle School. There was this program we used. It's called All the Right Type. And I remember the interface for this. I didn't like it because there was two or three lessons early on where there was no space after a period, but we had to type it incorrectly. And I know why they wanted us to do that so we could see the error and know how weird it felt to do that. But I spent all of sixth grade computer tech class learning this, and I hated that program, but I did learn a lot from learning to type on that program. And oh, what a wake-up call to even just think, oh, how we've grown since then. But yeah, kids today, I really don't think there is that dedicated typing instruction. And yeah, it's just kind of expected. Yeah. I, I know like the Indiana legislature has been working to get like cursive writing back in the curriculum. I'm all for that too, but yeah, let's mandate typing too, in my opinion. So here's another thing that can date any adult. When you learn to type, how many spaces did you have to put after a period? So I learned it both ways. Okay. My mom told me two, and Mr. Sharp told us one, but I remember distinctly the first paper I ever had to type while I was in seventh grade. I remember this big packet of guidelines we got, and these guidelines, I believe they had probably been typed on a typewriter years before, but they all mentioned just one period but I'm pretty sure throughout high school, especially when I had to write papers that had to be a certain page length, I would get the most out of those spaces after those periods. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the secret that everyone does. But that was in the days of when Times New Roman was still the standard. And that that's one other thing I found fascinating when I was looking at how word processing evolved. And when we got into Windows being the standard operating system that went from WordStar into WordPad into Microsoft Word... All these programs for so long had 12-point times New Roman font was the default, and that typically came from these organizations like APA and MLA and the Chicago Manual of Style, which demanded this for academic writing. And it popped up just within the past month here that uh, the U.S. State Department finally adopted a change from when in the year 2006, when Microsoft adopted a change beginning with Microsoft Office 2007, they went to to the standard font for Microsoft products being Calibri size 11. The U.S. State Department, as mandated by the Secretary of State's office, determined that they would now use 14-point Calibri as the standard font for all memos and official documents being produced by the State Department. And I I went on Reddit to, <laughs> as I thought, the consensus of Reddit will tell me more here. And a lot of people are talking about how you know, someone probably just wants it to all match their Outlook emails, which are already in Calibri as the font. Which, And then I went and looked, and I'm like, yeah, I think that's what a lot of our emails are. We use mm -hmm. Microsoft products for our emails here, and that's probably why. Size 14 fonts. Yeah, that is big. It seems so big for, like, writing a paper. Yeah, like, I can't that imagine. That makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, I was a real stickler when I was a teacher for my students using 12-point font. I worked with a colleague, and she required that the students type 
anything for her in size 16 Comic Sans. And I know just mentioning Comic Sans, anyone listening, you're either going to love it or hate it. And there are some people still religiously like use it as like in their email signature or something that I can understand for like your name. And I understand it's, I mean, a lot of the root of things like Comic Sans and there's another one I think on the Mac, it's called Chalkboard. Mm -hmm. And it helps uh, if you have dyslexia. I'm going to make a plug for the Libby app here for your reading at the library or the Hoopla app. You can use the dyslexic font option, and it's a lot like Comic Sans. But for a lot of professional standards, I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, Comic Sans. I, th- I mean, I think there was a scandal in the NBA over Comic Sans back four or five years ago or so. Wow. Yeah, I remember growing up in school, we moved states right before I started third grade. And I remember like our first learning to type classes in like first and second grade. And it was always heavily emphasized, you know, size 12. I mean, not so much that. but um, Yeah, yeah. The the two spaces after a period, make sure all your letters are like the same font in the rules of punctuation. And then we got to uh, my new school and for a little bit, it was still like, yeah, using two spaces is better. And yeah. then I think I hit like middle school and it's like, no, what are you talking about? Use one space. I feel like to me, I like the look of two spaces and Mm -hmm. it feels more natural to do it because if you type on a phone, if you double tap the space bar, you get the automatic period, Yeah, which I don't know which, I I think Android's the one that created it and Apple copied it. So I think they were trying to appease anyone who was like, I'm a two spacer. No, I'm a one spacer that you got the feeling, but the feeling of two spaces, the look of one, it's like they're killing two birds with one stone in the tech world now. So there is one thing here that is kind of interesting. Microsoft, uh, one of their big goals, I guess, and this is according to a website called Templify. I don't know how reliable this is, but a lot of the goals Microsoft has is not for every business letter or every document to come out looking the same. Mm -hmm. They want to embrace creativity. It's nice to have brand standards, but at the same time, you don't want to overdo it to where every sign, every piece of anything looks the same all the time. And people are just kind of tired of looking at it. And I think one of these things we have coming next in the world of word processing and typing is this chat GPT thing, this whole artificial intelligence that's come out there. We actually talked about this in our department. We had a little brief meeting yesterday and we, we watched a video of someone, we see this person on a YouTube video go, write me a, a cover letter for a job working for Google as an applications engineer in this town in California and be sure it has pizzazz or something like that. And you watch as this thing just cranks out this letter. And then after that, they just copy and paste it over into uh, Word. Or I think they even, they did like Apple Notes on a phone or something Mm -hmm. and send it to print. And I'm just like, there's no gumption or creativity to do anything well anymore, is there? Yeah, I know um, there have already been issues of like plagiarism with that, where like oh. students have handed in short papers, like completely written by a chatbot. And it's like, oh, that's insane. No, 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 no. I'm well, so glad I don't teach anymore. It's still fairly easy to catch because even with the really advanced ones, like you'll get sentences that look like a sentence, but don't quite make yeah. sense. So when you actually like sit down and read it, it's like, oh, clearly a person didn't write this. Yeah. But it's crazy that we're getting that close to that kind of thing. How times change. Speaking of how times change, uh, this is a shameless plug for anyone to go to archive.org and look at an archive of the internet. And look up the former EVPL website. Our cataloging manager here at EVPL pointed out to me that if you go to, and and when you do the Internet Archive lookup at web.archive.org, look up EVCPL 
.lib.in.us and from uh, 1996 you will see one of one of the mm-hmm. earliest existences of our website as the Evansville Vanderburgh County Public Library System and let me tell you that is a joy to explore what you can explore on that website there are so many gifts there are so many scrolling banners but what does stand out is we had the magazine department and we had the children's audio department or something. And it's just amazing to see how, how the library itself just has evolved over time and what kind of information we put out on the web. This was at the time when we had our first online public access catalog. We had, as early as the uh, beginning of the 1990s, a shared catalog that went between the EVCPL, Willard Library, and USI, and the Alexandrian Public Library over in Mount Vernon in Posey County. It was called GEAC, G-E-A-C, and um, then we went on to something called Inapac. At one point in time, we even were like linked up with like Vincennes. I mean, there's just been all sorts of different technologies over time. Yeah, that's crazy. I love the Internet Archive. Yeah. Thank you to whoever it was at the Library of Congress, I think, that helps keep all these things going online. If we didn't have this, we would, we would not have so many great things. Oh, and I will say staff in the EVCPL got internet in 1995, and that is when we started to be able to do outside research with computers. So computers took the leap from word processing over to um, becoming a little bit more in 1995, and before we all even had just internet, we were able to do shared messaging, apparently. And that started the trend of people having to come up with screen names. Do you remember what your first screen name was? My first screen name was, oh gosh, hold on here. I believe mine was in Band Guy in like 89 because I was born in 1989. But I think the N was for North because I went to North High School. But I don't know. Maybe I chose that for some other reason. I think there was an underscore in there somewhere. Or maybe there were two underscores. I don't remember. I I am pretty sure that my first screen name was like Stardust underscore girl and then 12 because I was 12 and 14 (laughs) because that was my favorite number. (laughs) I remember when I was in middle school, maybe or high school, the first instance of me having to have an email address for something. Mm -hmm. We had to email something from the computer lab to turn it in. We were like, ooh, cool, new way to turn things in. And we had to all go to Yahoo Mail and create an email address for this. And it could be any, I don't know what I chose for the username for that. I'm sure it was something insane. Yeah, I definitely remember a point in time where like the longer your email address was, the cooler you were. Oh, yeah. So speaking of technology, uh, this is a reminder across EVPL, especially this is something I do, but across our EVPL locations, we offer technology-related programming and instructional courses. You can learn more at the new short link, we have created, which is uh, through bit.ly, bit.ly slash evpl-tech, or just hop over to evpl.org and you can explore the events calendar. Register today. Also, we have tax aid coming up and ongoing throughout tax season. You do need an appointment for that, so give a call to any one of our branches and we can see when we could fit you in for free tax assistance. And apart from that, if you want to reach us, you can send an email to podcast at evpl.org. 
And uh, why don't you include your old screen names in that one? Yeah, share your screen names. What was your first screen name? And if you send in that potentially embarrassing information, (laughs) maybe you'll get a shout out in the next episode. Cool. So thank you, Jake, for spending the time. Thank you for inviting me. This has been fun. And with that, we will be back here next time. So be sure to check it out with EVPL. Bye.